Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you've all had a, a brilliant Christmas and New Year. This week's guest is Chris McClure. Chris is the brother of Reverend and the Makers frontman John McClure, and he is also one of the most famous faces in Indy. He's the front cover of the fastest selling debut album by the Arctic Monkeys. We spoke about his friendship with Arctic Monkeys, the Sheffield scene, his own band The Violet May and his battle with alcohol addiction and what he's doing now and at the end we also chose his four heroes to come for dinner. Hope you all enjoy the podcast and I'll be back again in a few weeks with another fabulous guest. Thanks very much. Right, thank you very much for coming on the show, Chris McClure. If people aren't aware of you, you're probably one of the most famous faces in Britain. You're the front cover of the Arctic Monkeys debut album. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. The fastest selling debut album ever, I'm led to believe. So, grew up in Sheffield. That's how you know Arctic Monkeys. Just tell us what life is like growing up. Uh, if you're a young kid, how you went to school, education, and get into kind of music and stuff like that. Um, firstly, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, I grew up in Sheffield, north of Sheffield, with my mum and dad, uh, my brother John, who's four years older than me, and... Um, I suppose to gear ge- listeners some context, probably like two miles away, probably less, mile and a half away from Hillsborough, Sheffield Wednesday's football ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was saying Sheffield's built on seven cities like Rome. Um, and we were, yeah, we were at really at north at City, like near a Barnsley end. Um, but yeah, I mean. It just seemed. I mean, mum and dad were quite. Well, they were both working class. My mum were one or seven, and she was. She was born on in Hillsborough. Um, my dad was from a place called Workington in Cumbria, um, and moved down here on his own at twenty-one. Right. Um, probably to escape the grimness of that place, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they both. I mean, they were both working class, but they dedicated the the lives to being to healthcare, really, to being nurses. Right. Um, and I think that had a big effect on me and our kid, really. Um, don't get me wrong, we weren't poor by any stretch. I'm not going to like romanticise from working class background, but we, were, we weren't flush either. We were taught value of money and um, just good memories, really. Like, my mum's side, I didn't have a... My dad's side of family it was strange because obviously I'd only see him on holidays and stuff and I didn't feel as connected to him. But my mum's side of family, because they were so large, I mean, it's a bit of a joke in Sheffield that me and our kid, we go on a night out, we meet a new cousin every time we go out, like, like oh, I'm related to you somehow. It's like one of them, like 60 cousins and that. But um, just, I personally have lovely memories growing up. It were, it were like football, my first love. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I, I At time, would like, between like 91 and 94, my football club, Sheffield Wednesday, had like probably like it was golden era, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, I remember it feeling magical, like really magical. We were going two cup 
were like in cup finals and I remember that feeling magical and I was right into musicals as a kid massively I had this like suitcase and I, it was stacked full of VHSs full of like Oliver Twist and like Carousel and like just I were, I were obsessed my mum used to take me to the theatre and stuff and that's what I wanted to do I wanted to get on stage in theatre um I ended, I just ended up doing like local pantomime and that. Yeah, and it uh, was no, just no. Yeah, I fancied it. But like live theatre, I don't know where it had come from. I lights. I remember like putting on shows for me like aunties and that in, in house and stuff. And I'd like memorize Oliver Twist from start to finish, every word. I still love that soundtrack now. Mm-hmm. Um but it were like, you can imagine, I were quite, I were decent at footy, I would think. I played for young gals and stuff. And you can imagine going up to your manager on a Sunday and saying, I can't come to match next week because I've got pantomime practice. You know, it don't, <laughs> it don't go down well. But um, yeah, so it were like, you know, traditional working class roots, really. And uh, you just going back to the football, see Sheffield Wednesday, because I'm a Celtic fan, so... Obviously, you get the, the Glasgow Derby, Celtic Rangers, all these other derbies throughout the world. What, what's the script with Sheffield? What's it kind of based on? Is it's, it's, nasty. it's nasty. It's nasty one. Right. It's, um, I don't think it gets to... Obviously, because uh, Fortune's at clubs for the last 25 years, you you don't get national press, but like when they play, it's full on. Um mm-hmm. It tends to be, roughly speaking, although it's, I think it's changed with demographics now, but it used to be north side at City were blue right. and south side at City were red. Um, I suppose, if I'm, being, if I'm being completely honest here and get take my bias head off, I suppose they see us as like upper selves and like, I think we have this joke that we're massive and like we're a massive club and blah. They see themselves as underdog who like to come and like upset Apple Cart almost. That was traditionally what it were like. Yeah. Um, but that's changed a bit with people, you know. Different yeah, well, he's economics. Both kind of, he's a both um, lower leagues now, and he's because when I was when I was young, Sheffield Wednesday were and uh, the first division. No, actually, were a bit, yeah. a lot bigger than they have now. Yeah, and I mean, fan base is still there. But I mean, that's what I mean. In '93, in when I was seven, we we had Chris Waddle and David Hurst and these sort of players, and we were like, we were full of internationals. And in '93, we got to FA Cup semi final and we drew against Sheffield United in semi final FA Cup, which is huge for City. Like, it was the biggest thing, even now, it's still the biggest thing I've ever experienced. And yeah. we, they were going to play at Ellen Road, but demand were as such that they had to take it to Wembley. Um, and we beat him 2 1, and it's still to this day the greatest day of my life, yeah. <laughs> probably. But yeah, I remember the biggest evacuation since war. There were 90,000 Sheffielders in London, right? Um, but yeah, it's 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 a big rivalry, but it doesn't get the the press because of where teams are. I mean, they've both been mismanaged, and it's it's like any like big city like Glasgow, Manchester, Birmingham. These working class cities, it, it, the rivalry is fierce, isn't it? Yeah, it's tribal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, and I and I get it. You know what I mean? It's and it actually affects you, but it's weird because like you you hang about with United fans and you work with them, so 
there's a different sort of hatred for Leeds because of Yorkshire and uh-huh. that sort of vibe. And Leeds have, we always joke saying Leeds have never had any bands. They had Gang of Four, didn't they? Um, never had any bands and they've only got one club. So we like, we always turn his nose up at Leeds. Yeah. See, I mean, I'm kind of similar with it. See the amount of the bands, and I don't know if it's just the way I look at it, but see the bar, all the all the decent Scottish bands like Celtic, and then um, there's only like a couple like Rangers, like Wet 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 and stuff like that. That's the way well, I Well, that's same. Probably no. There's probably some decent bands, but I can't think of any. Same in Sheffield, the Wednesday fans, Richard Orler, Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan 17, Arctic Monkeys, Revenant Makers, Milburn, every band or every creative type goes to Blue Side. Make of that what you will. Yeah. No, uh, I think they've I, got. That, that's been spoke about quite a bit up here, right? It's all the creative types around the sailor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying too much, but make of that what you will. <laughs> this is going to alienate half my listeners now. We had a Celtic and Sheffield Wednesday chat. Um, nah, it's football, isn't it? <laughs> So, I saw you were decent at Fatma, but... Yeah, I mean, now we're never going to be professional, but I enjoyed playing in, like to a decent level, and that's like... Well, we're quite a fit young lad, and I like sport and being active, and I was happy and full of life, and like I said, we didn't bang into musicals, and I suppose music... And then my brother was four years older, so in, like, 95, 96, let's say 96, I'm 10 years old. My brother's 14, so... 14, so that between that 96, 98 period, my brother starts bringing music into house. It's music that he's listening to. I mean, my dad sort of played as... Uh, my dad was like really into soul and Motown, but he also liked stuff like UB40, which were massive in our house. Um, and I think UB40... I know, I mean, I'm not saying our 10-year-old, like, understanding politics of UB40's music, it was just red, red wine and that sort of stuff, but... Mm-hmm. I remember listening to One in Ten in House and listening to lyrics and going, wow, like, I'm a middle-aged businessman with chronic heart disease. I'm another teenage suicide in the street that has no trees. And I remember that, like, really, really resounding with me and thinking, wow, that's, like, so real. They're writing about places I recognise. Um, but then... Really, my, my brother's influence. Well, of course, it is. I'm ten year old. My brother's going out. My brother's going out downtown, and he's getting Oasis records and bringing them into house and Stone Roses records. And like a lot of people, it changed everything. Really, practically, everybody I've had in the podcast says the same. Yeah. Oasis, it's and huge. It's, it's so woven into his culture. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, like some of the bands, like some of the people I've had on, like as I say, Alfie for the Holloways, uh, Lloyd for the Paddingtons, bands that, that don't sound in like Oasis. And you would, I, I wouldn't have expected them to be an influence, but uh, Oasis has been an influence in everything. I think even if you don't appreciate them as music, musically as maybe some other artists, like I think the fact that two brothers, working class brothers, from a council yeah. estate, did it. If you can't get belief from that, then mm. you know you might as well give up, man. Yeah, um, but that, I mean, I, yeah, I remember the average inspiration then, didn't it? To kind of so is that kind of what progressed John into the music? When did he start? Yeah, bands? I remember like 
I mean, bearing in mind, I don't, I don't claim like that. That were my period of music. I was ten, you know what I mean? What do I know at ten? I, I was yeah. still doing Macarena. I would listen to Supersonic one day and do it Macarena next. It went like, you know. So, but I remember my brother like we went. We both went to a Catholic school, Notre Dame, even though we weren't Catholic. But I think my mother bought like priest a bottle of whiskey and he wrote a letter to school and they got us in. <laughs> Bizarre. And I thought we had to pretend to be Catholic when we were there, but it turns out we didn't. But that's... Um, and I remember my brother, like, as he entered college sort of years, I'm, so I'm 12, and and he, like, he were bringing, like, random kids back and, like, playing on an acoustic guitar. And I just never saw our kid as being in a band. Well, growing up, there was no inkling that he was going to start a band. And even when he did start playing, it was like, come on, man, get a grip. There were a period where he got right into crooning and that. Like, he was always trying different things and, like, but he's that sort of character. Like, I can do that. I can do that. And, uh, I think my, so what, so when I'm like, so my brother's brought all this, this music in. My first experience were a band called Milburn mm-hmm. in Sheffield. Uh, and they brought a CD into school gave it me and said uh what do you reckon to that maybe you could be a singer i remember lewis saying i just when my head was just nowhere near it listen to it, it sounded like thing lizard which is laughable matter but uh and they got they were the first ones to get a band together uh, they're my age so like four years below my brother and they're the first ones to do it they're like pugwall remember that program that teenagers had a band they're I, like oh yeah <laughs> they're like in, they're like in community centre down road and they grew up in village ne- like not village but area next door and they're like from 12 year old in a band and it got to like when we were like 15 I'd say and they started doing gigs in town and for me that's they're the ones that like started it getting because you know it, you, if you were lucky you could get a pint you could get a drink one, one, if you got if you were tall like me you'd be able to get served so it were, it were a big night out at school if they were playing in town right. um, and they'd just do a mix of covers and like um, cover versions and their own stuff and you know but it got everyone together is the important so, thing so when what year would that be in about this will be I've probably I've probably yeah, skipped I've really probably good. skipped a little bit really what I so, but going back to my brother's influence on music, like it were always like me borrowing his CDs and me listening to to him what were cool and what weren't. And I I remember nineties and I remember it being exciting. I remember it so popular around the way. So our bank, I remember it being around. But then there seemed to be this weird period between like ninety eight and two thousand and one. Yeah. Where everything it was just it felt it felt really really we were just still gagging for it. We were watching Oasis gigs, man, and like they weren't really our band. Mm. Um, Limp Biscuit on like headlining festivals, and you're like, this does nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like literally, I'm not romanticizing this. Literally, when is this it? Drop by strokes, everything changed. Again, again, the same thing. Everybody says it, the strokes and then the libertines, and then that was just kick-start So strokes come out. Another one I would mention, other album is The Streets, debut album. That had a big influence on all my friendship group. 
and circle. Um, because we could understand, we could re- we could relate to what he was saying, Skinner, and, you know, yeah. and it sounded different to us because we weren't judgy indie music. It, it sounded different to us. It sounded exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Streets album and Strokes, and then... And then there seemed to be a bit of a wave, and it were like, hold on a minute, we've got a band here. In stroke, we've got a band that are cool and sound cool, and we can we can give the CD to them lads that are four years older than us. Mm. And so listen to that. And they were like, Yeah, this is cool. They're onto something here, like this is amazing. And I remember when I were at college, Lewis Carnell, who was the guitarist in Milburn said, have you heard this? Come in here and listen to this. And he played What a Waster by Libertines. And that would probably like, I think everyone has that moment where they hear a track and go, oh my God, what is that? Give me that. I don't want anything else but that. What is it? And we just went obsessed with Libertines. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody. And it how they looked, how they dressed, how they sounded. Um, how they do? How they do? Is weren't they red tunics? Weren't they? Like, yeah, red, I think what? Alex Turner once wore a red tunic. You know, he's he's, trying, he's never mentioned it, but I think Alex. I remember Alex Turner going to a coral gig in a red tunic, and because uh, <laughs> we, I remember, yeah, we went corals. They were a cool band, and it just seemed to like snowball then. But no, at this point, people in Sheffield are just forming bands. It's not real. We're just listening to this and going around country watching it. Mm-hmm. Um. And then you know, you know, you notice people have got like. I remember a big gig where strokes at Alexandra Palace, and they must have been like four eras down in London, only like sixteen, mm-hmm. and uh, we were all boozing in Leicester Square and we we're all on tubes, and it felt like we were part of something. And then yeah, and then the next bit is everyone else forming the the people in Sheffield forming bands. Yeah, basically. They kind of pay any drops, and you think, why are we fucking off down to London when we could be going and seeing doing our own gigs and things like that? And then that's when you get a scene. This is it. And I remember going to a... It's really hard to describe. I'll try and do it in a short way to describe how weird it were at time because I played for a Sunday league football team called Ecclesfield Red Rose. Mm-hmm. In that team, there were me... Uh, all of Milburn, uh, Jamie Cook from Arctic Monkeys. Um, so there's like, and obviously I'm linking our kid up. Like there's like a big, there's a big weird thing going on with this football team and everyone's like into bands watching them and everyone's going to Milburn gigs. So right. once we're in, we're, we're going to these gigs at a place called Boardwalk in Sheffield, which is where The Clash played their first ever gig. Um, supported Sex Pistols, and we were going there, and you could recognise the people, the the people that had dressed same as you, really. They had yeah. like we used to write <laughs> ridiculous man. We used to write on his jeans like Doherty, and uh, you know, and I and the bus that used to stop, the bus used to stop outside Boardwalk, the last bus. If you missed that, you'd had it. You had to walk it, and it's a long way. So we used to jump on bus, and. Uh, I'd get off if me or my brother got on it and Arctic Monkeys got on it Andy from Monkeys would get off in Hillsborough we'd get off in me and my brother would get off in Grenaside and they'd get off in High Green it were like they were the stops 
Right. And that's really how we struck up a friendship. The, the, the fact that he must have been decimated, see, see where he's all been in that. Oh, yeah. Just... I remember we, that night we went to Alexandra Palace, we were in a massive quarter-final next day. <laughs> and it was like, we'd never got that far in Cup. And me and three lads missed. We had to get a coach. And we had to, we missed it because tube were packed, so we got a taxi to Golders Green and missed coach, and we lost him. We never met it. We got back to Sheffield the next day, and we'd lost her, you know. And that's where Cup Dream went. Ah, <laughs> but you've seen a decent gig. You can yeah, man, it was an amazing gig. Um, yeah. So then at that point, I don't even think monkeys are actually like playing live at this point. I think they're just like we know them, and they're really sound and they're cool because they dress cool. And uh, my brother's kind of got this thing called Judan Stuka, um, like a weird funk band sort of thing going hey. on. Um, and Monkeys play their first ever gig at the Grapes pub, above the pub, uh, like a little Irish pub. And if you if you listen to people in Sheffield, you'd think there were 80,000 there, but... <laughs> Um, I promise you I were there. There were me, our kid, a lad called Richard Rice, who we sadly lost. There were about 25 people upstairs in this pub. Right. And a band called Arisons, who eventually signed to Sony, I think, played. And there were a band called The Sound On before Monkeys, mm-hmm. and they recorded the gig and left the they left it running by accident and captured first ever Monkeys gig. Uh, and drummer stupidly put it on LimeWire like a few years after they could have been sat on an absolute gold mine but I mean um, but that's a hang back then as well they were Arctic Monkeys were releasing everything leaking everything online anyway because I mean every they had the CD there was one there was one about a trainer in the last trainer yeah, yeah. oh choo choo um, I, I don't know where he would get them now I think I've got a few in attic. Pension in it. <laughs> I um, but even at that time, like I didn't, I, I don't think we were aware of anything online at that time. It literally, like you go into bands that I knew, we're going into studio recording at a place called Two Fly in Alan Smythe Studio. They were getting loads of CDs burned, putting the numbers on front of it, and leaving them at gigs. At best, charging a quid. Mm-hmm. Um. And then something seemed to shift. My brother changed bands to some... some so Alex and Elders used to join Judan Suki on stage. Uh, and then Monkeys kind of wrote a new batch of songs. And my brother changed bands to a band called 1984. And these were... 1984 actually were quite good. And it was like, hold on a minute. This ain't bad, this. Uh this is not me trying to big up my brother, but I think my brother were very clever in noticing what the Libertines were doing in London with this DIY ethic and yeah. making it quite, quite making fans feel involved and making it quite secretive and cryptic where you're going to do a gig. Mm-hmm. And my brother were like, why aren't we doing this up here? Yeah. And we'd do stuff. So he'd do stuff like tell me to like, get a load of people to meet him on a bridge in Sheffield at like half seven at night and we'll we'll walk you to gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and people started to buy into it like they were in. And I don't know, just like little things like, I remember doing one under, he did one underneath boardwalk and people had to meet us in a certain bar, but we getting clues to where bar were. Um, 
And next thing you'd be marching like 30, like 40 kids down middle of Sheffield to this like cellar. Yeah. And so you, you start know, to think... You know the only band that done, that done anything similar to that was uh, Embrace in Mind Dame. Really? Uh, they done like... Uh, they were putting on secret gigs and it was like things like that. Meet at this train station and there'll be a, a map for you to follow. And it, you, you did. Brilliant, man. They, they done like... They done like about 30 secret gigs there in the early, early space of maybe about five years or something. So they were like what people have, in that in what, the 90s. What people have got to understand is as well, we were used to seeing like stadium-sized bands, Oasis and Mannix and them sort of bands, like where you were so separated from that world. Mm-hmm. Like it were just us and them. like, And they were good because it were grand, but then... What, what Liberties did, we just smashed all that and were like, you're part, we're on a level with you. Yeah. I mean, average is equal. Yeah. So so that's like, there's a thing going on now. There's something going on in Sheffield. People are starting to stir. There's more people joining that scene. There's a few other bands and it's like, all right, something's kicking off. But still, there's no smell of any sort of like record interest and... I think while it, my brother turns into Reverend and the Makers, Andy, the bass player, called him the Reverend because he were always preaching. Right. And um, it seemed at this point that everyone were in a band or everyone were working for a band or everyone knew someone that were working in a band and there's just bands prop everywhere. Mm. Um, but still, no one's like hit it strong yet. And then for me... I'm, I'm probably whether this is correct and whether nostalgia or something that's blinding me, but this is how I see it. There were a gig, it's a very special gig for me, and, I, and it's become a bit of a legendary gig. And one again, once again, it's one of these like secret ones. And there's a band called the Arisons from Hillsborough who were a tough set of lads, they didn't mind a rumble. Um, and there were 1984 stroke Reverend Makers and Arctic Monkeys, and they were going to play in this, like, uh, they were going to play, if you look at the single on when the, where the sun goes down, that's their old practice room. Right. And the gig were going to be in here at, like, 11 o'clock at night. So we all went, we all, like, went and got loads of booze from shops, and everyone piles on. It were a recipe for disaster from the start, because downside to this is there's no stewarding or, like, security. you just got loads of off, your head kids yeah. in a in a in a uh, an old factory room, and uh, some had been said on stage between bands, and there's an atmosphere going off. But next thing, like an absolute riot kicks off. Uh, the whole place goes up between like Harrison's lot and Monkey's lot and our lot, and it's like I know it's like a fucking OK corral in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone eventually got cleared out. My brother's bass player's trying to find his gold tooth on the floor. <laughs> um, there's like a pool, t- there's been pool table here, so all balls have gone, it's all ripped. And it's and monkeys were like really upset. They started packing up the stuff. And we're like, there were like six or seven of us left. And we're like, nah, come on, play. We've come, man, you've got to play. And they played... And they played like fake, I'm sure they played like fake tales of San Francisco, dance floor. It was when these songs had just come and it was. And I remember at that point thinking, oh my God, these mm-hmm. are going to end it. This, these are on another level now. 
Um, and I think that's the night that a certain romance were written about. Right. That, oh, that's know, brilliant. Yeah. And I remember like, a couple of weeks after Alex came up for a pint, like to my local pub, and he was like, I've written, a, it were awful, weren't it? And I was like, yeah, it was pretty bad. And he's like, I've written, about, I've written a tune about it. You're going to proper dig it. You're going to proper... Because we used to have this saying, it sounds ridiculous, this, but we used to have this saying, like, we could tell something special were in there. Mm-hmm. So my brother would say, like, you've got to see truth, lads. See the truth. We'd always say, like, see the truth. It was like a little motto we had. I've got it on my arm, but it looks like... I've got it on my arm. I'm showing Martin for listeners. It looks like Lee the Truffle. Looks like Lee the Truffle, but it says see the truth. Magic, mate. Crying. And that's the, and it, I think that's what he means when he says, and there's the truth that they can't see. They're probably, you know, it were about like some specials going off. I don't know what we were trying to get at, but, and he said, I've wrote this tune. Um, I can't wait till you hear it. And I think like that night, I remember being in my mum's kitchen, me, our kid, and Alex, and he played it. And I was like, well, what are you going to, with them songs on that first record, as soon as you heard them, you knew. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a every day throughout the country had all the the stuff that was leaked online, and like, and I think that that that's about the right time. And some in background to all this, about this time, someone called Mark, who we called the sheriff, he put them online. We didn't know how to do that, and he was like, we were still listening to CDs, you know. We had MySpace, but he'd put them up online, and I, I don't think me and that my friendship group or band really knew that they were. That what were going on online. Mm. I think we were all oblivious to what were going on off online. Right. Um, but then you get like, I remember Andy ringing me going, you're not going to believe this, who were a bass player at the time, you're not going to believe this. What? Someone has driven down from Aberdeen to watch us in Nottingham. And it <laughs> were like, fucking hell, what? And like, that were blowing our heads, you know, Bl- literally blowing yeah. our heads, his heads off. And, um, I were play- I lived in Man. I went to uni in Manchester then, and they'd come over. I was obviously like everyone who, like, were in my company. I was like, listen to this band, listen to this band. You're not going to believe this band. And I remember them coming to Manchester in Meo's residence, and obviously everyone in Meo's residence, they were like tenorers, were like, we're going to watch them. So they like, they played this gig in Manchester, and there's literally me and nine people I live with and band. And then literally like four or five months later, they yeah. probably could have sold arena out. Totally different story. It just goes so quick, doesn't it? The rate of which it exploded were just fucking insane. And then obviously with that as well comes, it, they then kicking down the door, helped all the other bands come through. Yeah, because it, you know, we everyone knew there was something special brewing up and down country, but it need you need that one band that's going to lead it all, who's got the songs to just take it to another level, and yeah, it, they were good enough. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then my brother's got his thing going on at that time. He's mo- monkey's manager's like really into my, what my brother's doing. He's got a new setup, which is what you know as Revenant Makers. Uh-huh. And he's like writing his he's writing, he's working in a call centre and writing everweight champion and stuff like that. Well, I mean that's a good thing about it as well. With, with like your brother's band, it's no 
it's not the same type of music. It's different kind of ah, it's different. dancing and kind of so it's they're not too similar. But obviously, like Melbourne, Melbourne when I first heard them, they sounded just like Arctic Monkeys. Um, yeah, but that helps bands as well. You know what I mean? That's how I got into Melbourne was through Arctic Monkeys. I probably wouldn't have listened to them if it wasn't for them. But I, in this the same way. It's good to be different the way your brother was as well. Yeah, my brother took a lot of inspiration. I think, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I think he took a lot of inspiration from that. Sheffield's the, where electronic music were born, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, my brother took a lot of inspiration from that sound, Human League and Evan 17 and ABC, you know, and all that. And it, it almost like he paid respect to it and said, I, but then he still had the social commentary of what Alex was doing. Yeah. Uh, so it just made for a bit of a different sound, Which, more electronic feel to it. I mean, see, even the social commentary has got a lineage in it because Jarvis Cocker was doing social commentary. You know, I don't I mean? know if it's a sh- yeah. I don't know if that's a Sheffield thing. Almost like I don't. But you look at stuff like uh, yeah, I th- that definitely hit home to people that they were talking about. So like. You can all say Oasis for this and that, but Supersonic weren't really describing your life. Cigarettes and alcohol does maybe, but like when you're talking about stuff like uh, Dan, Bigo and Dance Floor and Everweight Champion, people yeah. understand the sentiments of them songs straight away. Mm-hmm. It were a big draw to them bands. Yeah. So at what point then did the prospect take a front cover? You've been on the front cover of an album. When did that get put to you? So I worked, I was really, really close to Andy Nicholson, who was bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite close with Al. Well, I was close with them all, but Andy, I was really close with Andy. Almost like brothers. And I went on to, so Monkeys were going to do their first UK tour and they asked me to come on board. <laughs> I'm saying this very loosely as a guitar tech. I, didn't, I couldn't even fucking tune a guitar. I think it was basically let's have someone who we can trust on tour with us Yeah. To just every help band, out. So, every band needs a pal that they own. Yeah. Everybody needs somebody like that on tour with them. Yeah. So there were I me. Boys like that. And a couple of boys just like you. Yeah. It's, you do, and you're not going to say no. So there were me, Tim Cleesby, who ended up being their tour manager and band in a little split of them. Just to, and it were fucking crazy that tour in terms of the crowds. Mm-hmm. Like they were playing 200 venues when they sh- when they could be selling academies down that road. They just accelerated that fast that promoters couldn't keep up with them and industry couldn't keep up with them. So I remember we were, we were getting up to these little venues and these people outside, like tickets were going for crazy price. I remember in Leicester, they had, I think it was Charlotte, they had to, I think it was Leicester, they were climbing over a wall to get out of a venue behind stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I worked with him on that tour and I did second tour, but on second, so there's me, band and two others, me included. And then I did second tour, which there were, I did merchandise on that tour, again, just to get me on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it got to a stage where it were like, we knew it were going to get big, but not as big as it went. We just knew it were going to, it were nailed on, they were signed now, albums ready to be recorded. And they said to me, look, you can have a job on tour if you want. But then I I was studying at the time and I thought, 
I don't want to get to a point where I'm in an arena and I don't see him. Yeah. Well, I've got, you know, it's not going to be the same. I've, I've, so I kind of, de- I declined that and went back to uni and like thought, just get on with it, lads. I like, I love you, but yeah, that's it. Um, and then I got a phone call from Andy Nicholson or Alex, one of them, and they said, would you have some photos? To-? I think the concept of the record the debut record was, it were almost a concept of a weekend in this guy's life. Right. Where he's finished work at half five, he's clocked off, he goes home, he has his tea, gets showered, he goes on this night out, and all the way around to like Sunday evening where certain romances like the come down of it all. Mm-hmm. I think that was, and I think it were even going to be called a weekend with at one point. Right. Weekend with the Arctic Monkeys. Uh, so I said, yeah, of course, I'm up for it. And they said for inlay, for the actual inlay, they want some friends in the inlay is what they said. Right. So I met this guy in Sheffield. Uh, we took some photos about half six in the morning in certain locations. And then he said to me, we'll go, the design company for the artwork are based in Liverpool. We'll go over to Liverpool. So we went over to Liverpool that day. And we're taking like random photos with other people. Um. And one guy, the guy, the main guy of the design of the design company said, Can I just get a full frontal of you smoking a cigarette just on a on a white background, just on this back street of Liverpool, just so I've got it? And I didn't he didn't say it was for a front cover. So we took that and I didn't think how else are it. And then I'm in my flat in Manchester, and then Andy rings and says, We want, we've seen this photograph and we love it. It's just your face smoking a cigarette. It looks so real and pure. Um, but we need you to get drunk to do it. We need you off your head to do it because we want it to be genuine. So I'm like, okay. He's like, and even at that point, I didn't think, I didn't know if they were going to be front cover. And he was like, will you, will, will you go to Liverpool? Will the company will pay for you and there'll be some money waiting for you? I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So it's a sat there and he said, you can bring a few mates. So I brought my cousin, our Tommy, who's been, I've grown up with. I brought my mate, Matt, who I grew up with. And we met this kid in Liverpool, lived there. And I walked into, I don't think it's there anymore, Carova Bar in Liverpool. And this guy is based, this, he just gives me this massive wad of cash. I don't know how much with it, a lot of money. And he's like, don't come back until every penny of that is spent. <laughs> and make sure you have a fucking good time. Um, and we loved a drink. We loved a drink. So, you can imagine, like, we're on, like, Stella and Whiskey Chasers at half 11 in the morning. <laughs> and it just got, like, daft, daft. Um, we're just chucking, we're just playing, like, that little dream of, like, chucking money about in Liverpool. So he rolls up to this bar about half 11 at night, and this woman's like, you're not off your head enough. I'm absolutely off me nut. And this woman's like, you're not, we need... And she remember she gave me this big joint, and I just stood outside this bar in Liverpool. It's, like, Saturday night, she's mad, and I'm just smoking this big joint in the middle of the road. And like, you know what happens, like fucking world turns upside down in your head and everyone was like, it's just, I'm in no man's land. And they're like, right, let's go downstairs. And I went downstairs to this little like, quiet room. So like underground, but you could see everyone's feet walking past. She's like, sit on that stool and smoke all them cigarettes. And they were just like snapping away. And then 
I ended up in Manchester. My mate ended up in Sheffield. Car was still in Liverpool. It was like carnage. I don't know what happened. <laughs> and then I got just whatever. And then a few weeks later, I got a phone call and it was Andy. And he said, like, I think Alex messaged as well. And he said, we want to use it for front cover as record. Just your face. We, we love it. That image is just so, like, what we're trying to get at, real. Um, and I just said, yeah. You know, but not thinking at all at any point. No conception of how big this was going to be. No, but the, I just thought it was going to be like no, nobody could. You, you couldn't imagine it getting to that. Nah. So it's all geared up and it's all ready to go, and no, you know, it is what it is, and it's we can't wait for it to come out. But there's a massive buzz about it, and it's like wicked, and it will literally like on the Sunday. You went to bed and you were just like, whatever. Yeah. And on Monday morning, you're on every tube, you're on every bus, you're in Times Square, you're on like Trafalgar. You are, it's like, fucking hell. And I remember my phone just wouldn't stop. My mum's ringing me saying, there's press outside our house. Uh, I'm like, what? Because monkeys didn't speak to press. Didn't have to. Didn't have to speak to them. They're like, Press, press were chasing them, not all the way around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just like, fuck. And I remember going to a, a nightclub in Manchester, rang me up and said, listen, you can come bring who you want. I'll get you top floor at nightclub. Like, like what? So, uh, yeah, and just like, just like your life changes overnight, literally overnight. Right. But um, obviously there's a downside to that as well, isn't there? Like, obviously... Interviews like this, and you, like, how many times do you get asked about that album cover? I would say it gets brought up once every three days, I would say, in my life. Mental. Which is mental, and I struggled a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, I went, I, I went in head first. I thought, when in Rome, you're not going to go to bed at like 10 o'clock every night, are you? Yeah. We could get in anywhere we wanted. And I, and I, I remember getting like mad offers like, TV, E4 saying, do you want to come and present this show? Do you want to come and sit on Nevermind the Buscocks? Do you want to do-? And I'm like, no. I'd said no. Sometimes I wonder in my head, would it have been easier to have just thrown everything in and said, right, I'm going to be a Z-list celebrity? Yeah. Been on, I've been in the jungle and things like that. <laughs> yeah, and just like, get a manager and say, hey, get me as much money as I can out of this. Because it's not going to last very long. But I didn't. What I tried to do was... Uh, of course, I had a good time, and it was always like I met some amazing people through it. But it, I were always trying to maintain this like normal life at the same time, and it put me in a really weird place. Mm-hmm. For example, like I've always worked. You earn money, do you know what I mean? I, like I went into a training course on a training course once, and, and this will happen quite often. I'll walk in and there'll be like 12, 20 people sat around this table waiting for this training, whatever it is, and one person will shout like, I've seen you on that fucking record, talking that. And like, so you've walked in a room and 20 people know who you are and you're there for the same reason as them. Yeah. And it puts you in a place of like, you feel different, but, you don't, but you're not. And it's like really strange. It's hard to describe. Mm. Um. And I think after a bit, it just started like I, I had a, I've been quite public about the fact that 
I struggled with my drinking. I always have done. I don't think that helped. And I think that mashed my head up with like, I just wanted to be, it got to a point where it was like, because I'd go to a party, for example, and someone would say, always say he's on front of that album. And then they'd say to you like, uh, hey, up, Chris, fucking, you're a legend, man. Uh, do you still speak to Alex or what? And it's like every fucking night. And it was like, I'm having to have a conversation about some guys every day of my life who I've not seen for about four years. Yeah. You know. So, um, I mean, it must have kind of brought in some sort of anxiety to a certain extent. Like, I think I were always searching for some sort of like, I were always searching to be recognised for something other than that. So I'd start a band. I had my own band. Uh, I'd always be coming up with like a little project. I were desperate for someone to like love me just for me. Like that sounds a bit deep, doesn't it? But. It were a, I'm not just that record, you know. I've got feelings like so, which sounds ludicrous, but well, that's just that because the only other probably the only other kind of famous album sleeve would be Nirvana, see the wee baby, yeah, Pool. But he was a wee baby, so he he got to like 18. I can mind of his reports. Oh, this is this is what the baby looks like now, and I think he got a couple of interviews, but you. You're like an adult on a, an album sleeve and really recognisable. So you've been getting all that time where this, this boy's had a couple of interviews once he turns 18. So it's a totally different thing, isn't it? So, and I don't regret it. I'd do it again. I'm not saying I'm not trying to play like poor... I'm not trying to play a fiddle here at all. I had a good time and it were good and it were wicked. And But I'll try to put you in some scenarios so you can understand... Like, I remember going on tour in Europe with my brother's band, Revenant Makers, when they were doing well in Europe, and they'd be like playing 2,000 venues, and I'd just be like doing merch. And after gig, band would absolutely blow, blow it out of water, smash it, and there'd like be people outside venue coming up for my autograph when they've just played a two-hour gig. And I'm like, I've only had a picture. I've done nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then you start to feel bad and you kind of, as if you're kind of taken away for the band or whatever. Yeah, it just put me in a really weird spot. I remember like, and I, were in, I remember being in Lisbon and someone had mentioned, we were on a stag do and someone had mentioned to barman. Uh, this barman said, where are you from? Because there were a lot of us. This is our Sheffield. This is our, I know Carlos Carvaral, who were Portuguese Chef Wednesday manager. And he says, I know Arctic Monkeys. And then someone has obviously said to him after, you know that guy is in corner. And guys come up to me and said, Listen, you can you don't have to fucking pay for a drink this weekend. You can have my bar. It's my favorite album ever. Do what you want. And I'm like, in I've got a bar to me sent for three days in Lisbon. Like it's fucking <laughs> no wonder I got into trouble. Yeah. And the thing is, am I right in saying you were on another album cover as well? No, I did like a promo thing for Toddler. Oh, Toddler's a great guy. And this is Sheffield again, like, got yeah. a massive, uh, a massive, he had a massive scene in, like, uh, it weren't really my thing what they were doing, but I really respected Toddler because there's so many little scenes in Sheffield and he just popped up and uh, he wanted to recreate with a dummy, so I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and what was the, the thinking behind that? Was that, like, a kind of, was that in any way, like, a nod to um, I think it were not. I think it were for his. It were for, it were for his. It were for his promo. This bearing in mind, this guy 
no one knows who this guy is and he's getting like thousands of people in warehouses in the middle at night listening to like grime and stuff. It's mad. Yeah. Um, and he were about to do his um, debut album and he, he, he was sending promo out to press and I think it was just a nod to that to get their attention, really. Right. And he were a good He's, kid, so I just thought, well, if I can help him out and do that, then fair enough. Is he, is he married to Annie Mack? Annie Mack, yeah, he, had a, he went on Radio 1. He's a really nice guy, toddler. Really nice yeah. bloke. I can, speak mind, to I can him mind that his first couple of songs from they came out. But, I mean, again, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I can mind the first couple ones kind of... He used to throw mad parties. If you wanted a good night out, like into and get naughty into late into night, he would a man. He used to throw serious parties, mm. um, and and knows his music and all. Got a lot of respect from people in in, in his genre. But like you say, weren't really my scene. Yeah. So obviously you touched on your band Violet May. So how far did how far did you go with that? Uh, one sole band had stopped touring and stuff, and what we're we talking here, like 2008, probably. Uh, I ended up in this like fucking horrible job in a call center, probably worst job I've ever had. And uh, a bloke, a lad across from me, uh, played me some. I'd never, not even entered my head to join the band, never entered my head. And he played me some stuff that I'd done outside having a fag. And I really genuinely loved it. I was like, what's this? This is class. Um, but I never felt so. I joined this band, yeah. We called it the Violet May, and we did all right, man. We went to Iceland, we did a tour of Germany, tour of Italy, uh, did a UK tour. But again, every review and every thing we mentioned were like, yeah, first two sentences were Arctic Monkeys. So, what you'd get is you'd get people coming to our gigs. And I'd, I have a lot of regret about the live aspect. I were off me nut. We all were. And I, I don't, the live aspect, I regret really. I was just have regret, but it makes me feel uncomfortable. I never felt comfortable being in a band. Yeah. Um, but and there were a lot of carnage going on. But we'd get people going to gig expecting to hear like an indie band. And we were quite heavy. We were more like... Uh, yeah, it's a different sound. I listen to it. I listen to it. Yeah, it's like Black Rebel it. sort of vibe. and Yeah. Quite a lot heavier. Uh, darker. And, uh, you know, they'd walk out. But we had, we did all right. And we had a good manager. Uh, Alan McGee used to put us on at Brixton. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just never felt comfortable. But weirdly, I've listened to the music since. I listened to it last year. Uh, although we basically we had a guy called John Gray and another guy called Brett who had some wedge behind him and wanted to produce an EP. He sent us into Angelic Studios and paid a lot of money for it. Uh, and that EP, I absolutely, to this day, I love it. It sounds so good. And I can say that with confidence. And um, But they were taking ages to get it out and everyone were a bit off their heads and it were all a bit weird. So I quit... Um, but they still put, they ended up getting another singer in and putting it out, which hurt me a bit. But I've got the recordings of me singing on it. But when I listen to the Violet May songs, like even now, like 10 years after, I really do like them. It's just the live thing I don't, that gives me creeps a bit. You've been back on stage, I've seen that kind of a few weeks back with Steve Bracknell then. So there's still maybe that me kind of bit of you would like to do that. Have you ever 
have I done anything with your brother? Have I ever done anything with the, the makers? No, I used to get up and do like there used to be a tune called Bandits where like someone it'd be on Bandit and like a mm-hmm. kid would walk into Boozer and take all and take jackpot while he's at bar. So I used to do that bit like cameo style, but uh me and my brother are tight as out. We're we're very, very close. Um he's my best mate. But yeah, we don't in terms of like producing stuff together, we're more it's nah, he does his thing and I do my thing. And I think in between Violet May and this Steve Bracknell thing, I've I've got sober, which is like the yeah. main thing. It's changed my life. Right. Um, well, we'll go into that because obviously I, I heard you, it was on a different podcast, demo tapes it was, and you were talking about it and uh, this wee documentary had just come out um, when it was at Vice and NME or something like that, wasn't it? Uh, so it was a thing about addiction. So it was... It was brilliant, it was brilliant. The, the people that were on it, Adam Fajek and the guy for yeah. Mods and all that, and it's, it's brilliant for people to talk openly and honestly about it because it, people in the music industry that are speaking out about it, there's that many fans that are feeling the same but don't know how to kind of tackle it, so it was a brilliant thing that you were doing. So obviously, if you want to touch on first how you felt and then why it was such an animated documentary. Um, yeah, I kind of had like my rock bottom, as you say, in 2019. I'd just done it, man. I'd been boozing heavily all my life, but a lot of bad stuff were happening because of it. And, you know, um, somehow got help and I've been sober since now. In, in hindsight, it were a bit early for me to start doing fucking documentaries on it because I were only like a few months sober. But a kid rang me and said, listen, I've got some money together. I want to do a documentary, uh, a series of documentaries about addiction in music industry. I've heard you've got sober. Um, and obviously, with the Monkeys cover link as well, I think he thought yeah. you can present this. So I like... Yeah, did a three small three part documentary on an addiction in music industry. It was frightening, really. Listen to some of the stories; it was frightening. Because mm-hmm. um, it's such an in alcohol props up that industry, doesn't it? Yeah, still. Yeah. Well, that's it. Because obviously, I mean, there's other people that appear on the, the documentary that that only and bands, just other facets of the industry that have been touched with as well. So. It, it yeah, every part of it's drenched in it, and you know, and uh, you make him. It's such a savage industry, probably more so than football. I think like it's so cutthroat. You can be the artist, you can be number one in March and be absolutely on scrap heap in September, and these people aren't going to be checking on your mental health after. Yeah, you know, and I think people find out hard way. Really do. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I can influence that, but. If them documentaries helped anyone, then it's done the job, and it is. I don't want to. All I don't want to do is preach to people about because I'm sober now. I'm, I'm some sort of like preacher, but it's important. If people ask me, I'll answer them honestly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to a certain extent, I can. I don't drink as often when when I go to gigs and things like that. A lot of the time, I go to gigs myself just because I can't be asked 
taking something along and worrying if they're enjoying it or not. So <laughs> I'd rather go to a gig myself and enjoy it. But because of that, I don't drink as much as well. Because see the amount of times throughout the Libertines and Kasebe and things like that, you go with a big crowd of folk and you get steaming before the, the band came on. You couldn't remember it the next day. You couldn't remember the gig. And you'd, you're spending like 30, 40 quid on a ticket for something that you don't remember the next day. Yeah, I remember going to watch Libertines in Kentish Town when the film Can't Stand Me Now video. I can't remember a fucking song. I remember a note. It's mental, isn't it? So, I mean, I, think... I, don't, I don't touch a drink and I try not to get my phone out either because I hate that as well. It's just go to a gig and see if people can go to gigs. Yeah. Love for it, that moment. And the, Well, this is this were all part of my problem. I never... I'm not talking about phones or I never lived in moment. I were always like fantasizing mm-hmm. or like when that happens, it'll, everything will be great. Or when this happens, everything will be great. Or like getting lost in my head. I never like took the time to just appreciate what were around me. Yeah. And I think that's even worse now with like people on social media and stuff. Having that, like I, I was worried when I got sober, would I be able to enjoy music again? Will I be able to enjoy football again? And you know what? It's fucking. I get it in its purest form. Mm-hmm. And you remember. I'm either feeling it or I'm not, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I try and, and that's what, that's helped me get sober, like living in moments. So I get it, man. But um, it's like boxers, isn't it? Boxers, footballers, musicians, the, the career span, unless there's only a small percentage whose career spans along at 40, you're on scrappy, you're done. Yeah, well, that's what I mean with the boxers. The, the boxers are done, and then half the time they go away for 10 years and come back and try and make a comeback because they don't know what else to do. Nice. And that's it's the aftercare that they need to invest in. Yeah. I've done, since getting sober, I've done an occupational therapy degree. So I'm qualified OT now, and I, I hope that that can be my way of like putting back in, do you know what I mean? And helping out. I don't know what sort of sector I want to work in, but. To do something creative industry or sporting industry would be amazing, way, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is, like, as you touched on as well with the football, there is that many young boys that uh, issues with mental health because it's the same. If if they've been playing football for 10, 15 years and then they get to like 20, 23 year old and the club saying, Oh, I've not got a contract for you, and there's not, and then that's you in your arse, and you've no, you've not done anything at school. And it's all that you've sacrificed as well. Aye. All you've sacrificed. I mean, you know what like going out and watching bands and that with best years of your life, man, in 16 to 21. Mm. Or going boozing downtown and they've oh nice. Uh, I'm sure it's getting better, you know. Yeah. So I mean that documentary, I watched uh, it was like 12 minutes on alcohol. It said it was three parts, but I couldn't find the other two parts. Where, where... I don't know where they are. Yeah, they were, they were one on heroin and one on uh, cocaine. Right. Yeah, because I could find the first one. Said so if you could let us know, I'll, I'll post links to to the other yeah, one. Yeah, I'll find them. Um, because I mean that one was cracking. We we had him and Sleeper Rose guy, you know that. So obviously, he done the occupational therapy. When did Steve Bracknell come about? 
well, he's been around in my head for like 10 years. And I go back to this Sunday League football team with Milburn and Monkeys that it's based on the assistant manager of that team. Right. Um, and I had an idea like 10 longer, 12 years ago. But I would, same again, I never, and I could never apply it properly because of the way I were. Well, that, um, see that demos tapes that you were on, you were talking towards the end on that about you had some comedy thing that you wanted to do. And I, I kind of I got the impression it was us that you were talking yeah. about. Uh, I, I, I put a video out 12 years ago just doing a team talk as a joke. There were no meaning to it, no depth to it. And it went viral online because people just thought it, they thought it were real, but I were obviously acting. Uh-huh. Um, and it got signed to a, it got optioned as by a company who did Toast to London and chewing gum and stuff like that. Right. But because of where I were, it all fell apart. And I said to myself, when I get my head right, I'm promising myself I'm going to go back to that character and try and do it justice. So I picked it up again nearly bang on a year ago. Um and people buzz off it, <laughs> absolutely buzz off it. I think when I seen it, it must have been about six months ago. It just started popping up on my Facebook, and I was kind of the same. Where I thought, "Is that real?" It, it, it took a while to work out whether it was whether it was a pet. yeah. Well, I th- mini, I've got a um, Twitter's where it really kicked off, and f- like on Twitter, it really kicked off, and I get a re- like there's a good following on there, but. I'm restricted to two minutes 20 on there, which is great because you get in and you have a laugh and you get out again. And uh, But really, there's an old other world I've developed around him. Like this guy's in his mid 40s, he's having a midlife crisis. Music doesn't represent him no more. He hates politics. Football's outpriced him, you know. So he's left. His wife's fitter than him more successful than him because she's the salons kicking off, you know, and he's left with this bunch of now opers on a Sunday. Like that's his only way to get any sort of like passion out of him, you know? So there's a big deal. And you know what? It's about a bloke struggle with mental health really, but I need the right platform to express that. And that's the next like stage basically for it. So where do you, where do you see it going? In my head, I, I think I've always seen it as a six-part, 30-minute sitcom, but more I talk to people, more I think about it, more I think you could have fun with it. And I think, I don't know, there's a way that I could have fun. There's something to be said for DIY in it. This is, it's got a very DIY feel to it. Like it comes from streets. This yeah. bloke's very relatable to a lot of people. Um, so is this something about putting stuff on us, creating some of ourselves and touring it? Do I do I end up on theatre stage? I don't know. Um, I don't know really. I'm writing a minute. I'm writing to try and beef it out and get a series arc where they're on a cup run. This team are on a cup run, but they're they're facing a facing a financial meltdown. Right. So you know he's trying to fucking raise funds and. So what would you do with? See if you're saying that you're writing a series, do you have you put it out to MD? Have you told them that you're doing it? Yeah, I've pitched to it before. And if this is me being honest, I've pitched to a few, I've been in rooms with I've had enough support online to get into rooms with people because they're saying, Well, what's going on here with this? Um and I'm gonna be honest because that's the only way I can be. I th- I think what they see at minute is like an angry northern bald man 
how do I word this to not come across as I'm just, I'm just gonna say it is it is I don't think these people understand the world I'm trying to describe. Mm. That sounds maybe like and there is a bit of this like they need to see more writing. I get that, of course they do. But for example, I won't mention who it were, but one of the people I were in a meeting with said, my character's an electrician. And it, one of the guys said to me from a big play, said, well, I don't understand why he doesn't live in a terraced house. <laughs> and I'm like, he's a fucking electrician. He lives in a very nice house. That's his problem. He, he's outgrown his class. Why like, he doesn't, it's that thing that there's a bit of classism going on with it, I think. Well, I mean, that's the thing. So, so these people don't understand the depth to it. And that's the only the only way they can get the depth is be watching their videos and, and sussing it out for themselves, really. Yeah, because there's certain people who I'm aiming it at, they understand it straight away. Yeah. They understand what he eats, what he drives, why he's pissed off, you know. And it. He is disillusioned with world. Of course he is. And there is, but I think they automatically think he's some sort of Brexiteer. He's not. Mm. He's not. He's like some sort of like right wing Brexit guy. He's not. He's, he's an extremely vulnerable guy who doesn't understand any of it. He's in the middle. He don't want it to be right left. He don't want to be to right. He just wants it in the middle and a bit back to how it were. Yeah. Exactly. Can we get some sense on matter here because you're all fucking balmy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's that I'm trying to get across. Yeah. Well, I got it, man. I sent it to I sent it to a couple of my mates at work the day. Um a couple of them and Fitbit teams, and they they clicked right away, you know what I mean? They understood it because they played in teams like that, so they've, they've seen that sort of character. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, I mean on the stuff that I've put out and online is just on one level really flat. I try and just make it funny, do you know what I mean? But I still think the whole stuff that I've just discussed there is backstory and the reason it needs fleshing out and it needs another platform, but maybe this year's the year to do that. Yeah, that, that's it. Just keep pushing on. That's yeah, it. you got to. I do, what I don't do nowadays, I don't like pin my hopes on everything like it. It'll happen if it happens. It happens as long as I'm like all right in myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, long gone at days where I like pine for something that doesn't really exist. You just gotta like do it for fun, and then if it goes anywhere, cool. If it's good enough, it'll get picked up. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant, man. Um, I, I think I think it's got legs on it anyway. I think it'll it can go places. So. You can get that on YouTube, can't you? YouTube and Twitter, I'll, I'll post. Yeah, Twitter. If you can follow, you can follow Steve himself on Twitter at Steve Bracknell. Uh, but you can search on YouTube for Steve Bracknell Sunday League, yeah. and it's all about the tales and woes of this man who's the assistant manager, not the manager, um, of this Sunday League football bunch of now opers really, and trying to follow the dream to Premier League. So I'll I'll post some I'll post some links for them on the wicked cheers mate the fact, on my notes. Uh, so four heroes to come for dinner. Um, hope you've had a good think about this. A lot of the guests can't even what I looked into for some of them. I had uh, Gemma for baby shambles. She was on. She picked about twenty different people. 
no, I say four, but there's plenty of room for honorary mentions and things like that. No, you get me four, and I've I pick four. I'm not going to have it. There's only four seats, so <laughs> um, I had three heroes growing up. Now I'm not going to try and sound cool about this. It weren't Joe Strummer. Yeah, I liked all them people, Lennon and that. I loved them, but. I'm not going to be cool about it. My three heroes when I grew up were Noel Gallagher, Chris Waddle, the footballer. Uh, but I've met them too. And I've had a drink with him. And I've sat down with him and talked to him. And I'm very, very, very grateful for the opportunity to have done that. It was a dream. So they're not coming. They're not invited. I'm not wasting a seat on people I've met. <laughs> um, so Carolina Hearn. Is going to come. My first guest. Right. Uh, an hero of mine. I loved Roy- when I same Similar to what I said about that UB40 song, when I watched Royal Family, I instantly understood what she was trying to tell, this the story she was trying to tell, what a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I get this. She, when she passed away, I felt really upset because, do you know, I don't know if you feel this. There's certain people that I just think I would have got on with you. Yeah. Yeah, you could clap with her straight away. I just knew that if I sat in a room where I had a clip with her and I felt an affinity with her and I think it had been reciprocated, I hope. And so she, Caroline's coming. She just kind of came through in nowhere, really, with the royal family, didn't And that, that just kind of hot her throat. She had a thing on fascia, didn't she? She'd come through that Granada Manchester scene, didn't she? But, like, to be a woman that witty in the 90s, yeah. And get to where she did, like, love her. And I think, yeah, so Carolina Hearns is my first guest. I'm going to welcome her. Ladies first. She comes in, she sits down. Um, Diego Maradona's coming in next. Right. Uh, just because it's Diego and it pisses me off when people have these, like, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo debates and all this, because for me... You need to be full package. And Diego Maradona was a rock star. He won a yeah. World Cup on his own. He went with Mafia. He's got the old fucking caboodle, man. Diego's sitting at the table with Carol. Fucking hell, me, Diego, and Caroline's going to go wrong, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, Diego sits all right with me, obviously, as a Scotland fan. Oh, yeah, man. He's fucking lovely, isn't he? Isn't for what he done to England. I understand I understand what it meant for him to punch a fucking goal into England's goal after what we've been up to. I understand it. So you can talk to me about it, Diego. But, but the hang with that is then, see to, do, see to score that goal and then for the next goal to be just like total genius. And then he done, just, a, he done a goal like that again, didn't he? Against Belgium, was it in the same World Cup? Yeah, he, he took... Just took he basically took them like a single handle at World Cup, yeah. winning at World Cup, and you know to to punch it in against England, who they've been at war with, and then do that, which is like genius. It's just it's mythical, isn't it? Our good days. There was players when their ass everywhere went there. Hadn't Terry talked about three times. I saw Peter Reid. He's good bloke, Peter Reid, and I saw him at a. A, a Wig, at Wigan versus Wednesday because his mates were their manager and he said I, I've, I've got to ask you he says 
He says, you can't fucking get anywhere near him. He says, the bloke were an alien. Low centre of gravity, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, you look at the players as well. Nowadays, like, the prices that players are going for, and you think, what sort of money would Maradona go for? Fucking unbelievable. I mean, that's while he's off his head and all. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Maradona, Carolina Hearn. Um, the next person I'm going to have is David Attenborough. Uh, I went to what I took my sister-in-law to watch him be interviewed and it was such a beautiful hour just listening to him talk about what he's seen and experienced and the reason I like Attenborough and the reason I I, if my ego is running away with me or I'm getting self-obsessed or something's troubling me or I'm building something up in my head all that can be released if I watch an hour at Attenborough. Just because, just it makes me feel so insignificant in grand scheme of things that my problem like loses all its power. You know, because it's I'm like sat there I'm watching some like miles under ocean that I've never seen looks and I'm I'm like it's not really like whatever I'm worrying about isn't that important now. Yeah, because you know. It gives me that sense of like calm. I've got I've got some issues with Attenborough. Why? I've, do you know what it is? I, I watch all these wildlife programs and I, I de- don't get me wrong, I love them. And I've spoke to folk at work about it. But I reckon I could do it. I reckon I could do like some sort of <laughs> thing about badgers or something like that. But the thing is, nobody seems to get a chance. It's like whenever <laughs> a new wildlife program, it's just. Attenborough, Attenborough gets a gig all the time. Um, yeah. and I'm like, Let's I'm be honest, though. It's coming up soon, isn't it, gig? Yeah. So, but that leads me on to something else. Uh, regarding Steve, regarding your Steve Bracknell, have you have you heard this other boy? He's like, a, what's his name? Steve, Steve Bashnell. And he's, Backshall. Uh, Steve Backshall. So every time I was searching for you, he was coming up, and I don't like him either. I've watched a hang with him where he's in some Amazon jungle and he's messing about with a spider and he's like, this spider, if it bites you, one bite and you get an instant hard on and then after five minutes, it's that's you kaput, you can never use it again. So he's messing about and he's, he's poking it with a stick and all that and you're like, surely that would be the last thing you would do, just... Stay away from it. The guys get issues. I just I don't like him at all. Um, Skin his hard on for that. You know what I mean? Like you'll never be able to eat a hole again. And he's he's poking about with a spider. Oh, it's horrible. Bracknell's Bracknell's got an issue with Backshall, and he's yeah. had it out on Twitter with him. So that's what, that's what you should do. That that's where Steve Bracknell could go once his football career's away. He could take care as a new Attenborough, and that would. No, and you, you can have Attenborough. I'll have I'll you can have Attenborough gig and I'll have Backshaw. Right. We can work together. There's enough money out there for us both. I want to eat our next podcast. In fact, I want you to end this podcast with your uh, Attenborough impression or what you'd do as Attenborough. Oh, I've got, that's me. That's my anxiety coming out now. I'll need to. <laughs> I'll do it in your own time. You don't have to end podcasts with it. I'll post it on Twitter for you. 
fucking brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I can't put I've, I've heard that there was one came on last year, and it was Ewan McGregor was doing it. And I thought, yeah, no, it was horrible. And I thought, no, you and McGregor, a Scottish guy, I should really get behind him. But I thought, no, I don't like him doing it either. So it turns out I don't, I don't want Attenborough doing all the wildlife, but there's nobody else can do it better than him. He'll probably get fucking James Corden. (laughs) Fucking, you know, he's on fucking everything else, isn't he? Yeah. Basically, whoever takes that job is like David Moyes at Man United. It's following Fergie, and you've no yeah. chance. So, I, I can understand why they're using Attenborough until he draws his last breath. Really, that's a, a great choice again. Yeah, Attenborough's going to come and just calm us down because me, Diego, and Caroline are going to get Larry. Yeah, Attenborough's going to calm us down towards end, and then uh, my fourth guest. I thought long and hard about this, and it's, this is a bit. No, I'm going to have him. I'm going to have Bill Wilson, the guy who wrote the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Because essentially, it's because he wrote that book, he's probably saved my life. So I can't not have him in. Um, and he's going to, he's going to hopefully provide me uh, Caroline and Diego with some serenity yeah uh, a, a guide to, a guide to living because we know if we have to spend a lot of time together well he's going to he's going to like he might not even get a chance to speak to you but, you know what I mean if he's got Diego there he could be all night with him yeah you know and he's and, not, and Bill Wilson is a recovering alcoholic he's saying so Diego could drag him back into mitts of things you know what I mean but yeah. um, no I'd have Bill Wilson because his words and his wisdom changed my life um, and it's an amazing story how he came about um, and then do I have to choose what I'm going to cook him as well I just uh, I'll tell you that's far it's basically to see if you're any good at cooking you know what I mean so I don't mind cooking. I do like cooking. If I've got a recipe, I'll cook. Um, in fact, we've got a stroganoff on slow cooker downstairs. But I'm going to do a Yorkshire pudding starter with gravy and mint sauce. Mm-hmm. We're not messing about with that. And then Diego's brought us some Argentinian steaks. Right. Um, which are going to be best steaks in Argentina if Diego's bringing them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I reckon Carolina Hearn does a banging roast potato. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to have some... And then Attenborough's... Do, Attenborough's... What's he doing? He'll make veg. He don't want to be cooking meat, does he? He can do veg. And then... Uh, oh, that better turn up for the books if he came with, like, one of these big endangered fishies or something and says, oh, it's that Fucking hell, yeah. <laughs> you like you fucking fake <laughs> <laughs> so we're having a bit of a Sunday dinner vibe, like Mumsy Sunday dinner. Yorkshire yeah. pudding starter, and then uh, like a nice steak. We'd, we'd have to get some like posh, like we can't just lob a load of gravy on Argentinian steaks. So we'd have to have some sort of like reduced dew or something like that. You know what I mean? That sounds brilliant, man. And they're all good choices. No one of them's been picked. I don't think we any other guests are great choices. Chris, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. You've been on that's a, an hour and a half of your time. Wow.
I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.